To say that you should ignore economists because their forecasts are always wrong, are a bit like going to your doctor who tells you you should stop smoking, and you say, well, if you can't tell me the exact year that I'm going to die, I'm going to take no notice of you. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman's New Times podcast. I'm Serena Kaczynski, the digital editor, and today's podcast, we're offering you something a little bit different. For the past three years, the New Statesman's Ferry Prize for Political Economy has been awarded to the political economist who has succeeded most effectively in translating their ideas to the wider public. Economic ideas can be very complicated and sometimes need decoding. This year's decoder-in-chief and the winner of this year's award is Professor Simon Wren-Lewis of Oxford University. Professor Wren-Lewis is also the author of the lively and widely read blog, Mainly Macro. I highly recommend checking it out sometime. I mean, some people who do blog seem to regard it as an alternative to an argument at down the pub. What I try and do is write stuff that isn't what you'd hear down the pub. So instead of a conversation between myself and some esteemed guests this week, we will be playing this year's New Statesman's Very Prize Lecture, delivered by Professor Ren Lewis on November 22nd in London, to you in full. We hope you enjoy it, and please let us know your thoughts about this week's podcast or any of the episodes in this series, either by leaving us a comment on iTunes or tweeting me at Eskaczynski on Twitter. But I, want, I want to start in the sense where I came in, and, and Tony's... Uh, already referenced that, which is austerity. Uh, Austerity is what made me start the blog. And essentially the reason I started was before austerity, in 2008, 2009, governments around the world were doing what seemed to be the right thing from a macroeconomic point of view. They were doing what the textbooks said you should do, which was when interest rates hit a floor such that you couldn't cut them any further, then you turn to the next best thing, which was fiscal stimulus. And then, and not only was it the, the policy that the textbooks prescribed, but it was also the policy that state-of-the-art macro suggested was the right policy. And I knew that because... Uh, I had been working for the past 10 years on monetary and fiscal policy interactions. So this was kind of uh, my field. And then in 2010, it all changed, and we had austerity. Now, I think, I think most people probably think that austerity uh, was, was a result of the Eurozone crisis. So I'll say a few words about the Eurozone crisis. Although it was a bit uncertain in 2010 what was going on, by 2011, I think most economists realized that what was going on was pretty unique to the Eurozone, that we weren't all going to become like Greece. And I remember my first blog, uh, I think December 2011 was my first blog, was actually on this subject. And it was on the fact that every time a, a government, Ireland, Portugal enacted a new piece of austerity. Uh, The questions that journalists and others would ask is, is that going to make the the market satisfied? Are they going to be happy with that? And it seemed to me, just observing the market, that actually the markets weren't terribly interested in any of that. The markets were only looking at one actor, and that was the European Central Bank. 
And by the time I wrote my first blog, uh, that idea and the reasons for it had been formalized by Professor Paul de Grand. And, and what he pointed out was that the reason why this is a crisis peculiar to the Eurozone, why the crisis spread beyond Greece, was because the European Central Bank wasn't acting as a lender of last resort, wasn't buying government debt if the market stopped buying that debt. And that was his idea. It seemed to fit my perception of what was going on, but he was proved right very quickly because in September 2012, the European Central Bank changed its policy, introduced a policy that did allow it to act as a, uh, a lender of last resort, and the contagion came to an end. So when we had a, a, a sort of boiling up of the Greek crisis again in 2015, there was no contagion. So it was a peculiarly Eurozone affair, but it was not why we had austerity in the uh, UK or the US. And I'll just focus on, on the UK, which brings me to George Osborne, of course. Uh, and this is a talk that George Osborne gave uh, in April 2009. And it was a very technical talk. It was about the theoretical basis behind his macroeconomic policy. And he said that New Keynesians, the kind of consensus modeling at the time, said that it was better to use monetary policy than fiscal policy to stabilize the economy. And, and that was fine. And if he'd written it in 2006, maybe it would have been okay. But he wrote it on exactly the same month as interest rates in the UK hit a floor. It hit 0.5% where it stayed for the next uh, five years because the Bank of England didn't think they could cut any further. And you don't give a lecture which says we misuse monetary policy rather than fiscal policy when you can't use monetary policy anymore. But there was nothing, nothing in the speech about this lower bound for interest rates, even though we just hit it. Nor was there anything in the speech about how this new Keynesian framework that he said his policy came from said that QE was a pretty lousy instrument, be fairly ineffective. And, and remember, this, this was meant to be a technical speech. It was the equivalent of, of Gordon Brown's, what is it, post-neoclassical endogenous growth speech, if you remember that. Um, and, and it's the kind of thing that if a, a first-year student had written for me, uh, I would have said, no, it's a fail, I'm afraid, because it's completely irrelevant to the current situation. So it's quite extraordinary. So that raises the possibility that austerity in the UK was actually just a giant mistake that it was because George Osborne didn't talk to enough macroeconomists. But actually, I don't think that's right. I think the real reason for austerity in the UK was what I call deficit deceit. It's an attempt to pursue the neoliberal goal of shrinking parts of the state by the back door. Because you know, if you try and shrink those parts of the state on its own merits, it will be deeply unpopular. But if you have the excuse of doing so because you have to reduce the deficit uh, and the markets won't otherwise buy our debt, then that maybe you can get away with it. So I think that's the, the real motivation behind UK austerity. It's certainly obviously the motivation behind US austerity. I mean, the Republicans were going on about the deficit under Obama. You watch under Trump, the deficit's going to explode, and the Republicans will say nothing. <laughs> 
But I also think there's good evidence it was true for the UK as well. Because austerity, first of all, started off being more than 80% cuts in public spending rather than tax increases. And there's no real economic justification for doing it that way. And then in later years, it wasn't no tax increases, it was actually tax cuts along with spending cuts. And that really reveals the, the true motivation behind austerity, I think. Now, when I argue this, a lot of people say to me, well, well, yeah, but we had to have austerity because, because the market said we had to. I mean, everyone knows that. And when I say, but actually, if you look at the evidence, there's no evidence that the markets uh, wanted uh, austerity. And in fact, quite a lot of evidence that they weren't too bothered. Uh, and they say, oh, well, maybe, but, but the markets are incredibly unpredictable, so we had to have it just in case they turned on the UK. And I say, but, but even if they had, because the Bank of England, through QE, was acting as a lender of last resort, there was, it was just impossible for the UK government to be forced to default. They still remain unconvinced. Anyway, that, that's my view about UK austerity. But is it just my view? What I want to argue is, in fact, it's the view of the majority of, of macroeconomists. But it's almost as if the view about having to have austerity because of the markets had become what I call a politicized truth. It's because politicians kept saying we had to do it because of the markets, and to be honest, because the old city economist agreed, then the media began to think, well, this must be true, and therefore uh, started saying it itself, and therefore people who watched the media started thinking, well, it must be true. And the problem is there that the one people they weren't letting in in focusing on, on what I'll call later on a kind of Westminster bubble uh, were academic economists who actually knew something about austerity. So it became a, what I call this politicized truth, something that isn't true but appears to be true as a result of this political process. But, but am I right in thinking that actually most macroeconomists didn't think austerity was a very good idea. Um, and, and I love to be able to say, well, we know that. But unfortunately, we don't know that, and that's a problem, and I'm going to come back to that problem with Brexit. But I think there's, there's quite a lot of good evidence that most macroeconomists thought austerity wasn't a very good idea. In 2010, there was a famous letter from 20 eminent economists uh, to the Times in February of 2010, which said we must have more austerity. But even then, that was immediately followed four days later by a letter from, I think, more than 50 other economists saying, no, that's wrong. We don't need more austerity. It's completely the wrong thing to do. And that pattern where the number of people saying we should have austerity in terms of academic economists was matched by letters or whatever from academic economists saying we shouldn't, which are larger in number, that pattern was repeated just before the election. So I think even then, when the Eurozone situation, was, the Eurozone situation was, was quite unclear, a majority of academic economists thought that austerity wasn't a good idea. But as time went on, as the Eurozone situation became clearer, and I think more and more academic economists thought 
as I do about austerity, and the minority that thought austerity was a good idea got smaller and smaller. So by 2013, even I'd say, uh, the number of academic economists that thought austerity was a good idea was pretty small. Now, I do stress academic economists here. If you're talking about city economists, then actually, as one of the pieces of evidence there suggests, uh, you get a rather different picture. Uh, not all, but quite a large number of city economists were pro-austerity. And that's a problem. It's a problem because actually city economists don't know that much about economic policy, and academics know a lot more. But it's also a problem because the media tends to access city economists a lot. And, and for good reason, because most of the time you'll see an economist on the box is explaining why the dollar's just fallen or sterling has just risen. And the media are absolutely right to talk to city economists about that, because if they ask an academic economist, they will, they will get one of two replies. They will either get, what? Oh, I hadn't noticed. Uh, I was too busy marking. Or they would get, oh, who knows? Could be lots of reasons. We haven't got any evidence. And that's not what someone in the media wants to hear. Whereas city economists will always tell you a story. It'll often be a quite plausible story. It will be a story because there's no evidence out there about what, why the market's doing what it's doing. Um, so it's just the kind of person, in a sense, that you want on the media. Although I wish occasionally they'd say they didn't actually know. Um, but they always pretend they do. But when it comes to economic policy, you really want to be talking to academics, not city economists. Not only because they don't know so much, but they are obviously biased. And I can talk maybe later, if you want, about why they're obviously biased. So I think it's fairly clear that a majority of academic economists uh, were against the policy of austerity. But they just really didn't get a look in in terms of how the media portrayed austerity. And I want to go through some examples of that. When GDP finally started to, to pick up, finally had some growth in 2013, even the serious financial press said that this vindicated austerity. And, and that you know, is, is truly Orwellian. Austerity, which delayed the recovery from 2010 to 2013. So when you finally get GDP growing in 2013, that's supposed to vindicate austerity? I mean, it's completely the wrong way around. Another example, which uh, uh, is dear to my heart for reasons that become clear, uh, are the floods at the end of 2013. One of the things that did most damage in the UK austerity were cuts to public investment. And part of that public investment is spending on flood defences. But when the, the floods came at the end of 2013, the link between that and austerity was, was hardly made. Uh, a few people did question the Prime Minister about whether there had been cuts, and he said no there hadn't, and they just shrugged their shoulders and carried on. Um, I remember one, one slot on, on the PM program on Radio 4 where, where they had someone you know, really getting into the statistics and they said, well, on the one hand, on the other. Uh, no one actually published the data as far as I know and the only 
place you could actually find the data, which was in the House of Commons Library, was on my blog, and here's the data. And look at that data and tell me that there wasn't a cut to spending on flood defences. The reason that Cameron could say there wasn't, that he was counting 2010, that big number in 2010, as something that he'd done, even though it was actually part of the previous Labour government spending review, when their spending review came into effect, uh, there was this big cut in spending on flood defences. And it's actually worse than that, because in two, the reason why there's that big increase in spending on flood defences between 2007 and 2010 is in 2007 there was the Pitt review after a previous bad case of flooding. And what Pitt said is because of man-made climate change, we are going to get a lot more extreme weather events. And so we need to build up our flood defences. And that's why we had this big increase under the Labour government. So that was completely ignored by George Osborne uh, and his colleagues when they cut spending on flood defences. So the government was extremely culpable but the media never held them to task on this. In fact, I got so frustrated about how what I thought was the, the macroeconomic way of, of thinking about this was just not reflected on the media that I, I coined a term which some other people, including Paul Krugman, uh, have picked up on, and that's media macro. This is macroeconomics as portrayed in the media. Uh, and the broadcast media in particular. And, you know, the, the obvious example is deficits. According to Media Macro, when there's a recession, the deficit increases, that's a problem where we need to cut the deficit. We all need to tighten our belts. Whereas you look at any macro textbook anywhere around the world, they tell you in a recession, you want to increase the deficit to help the recovery. So it's a completely different world. Another example of what I call a politicized truth was the idea that we had to have austerity, partly because of the market, but partly because of what the Labour government had done. That the phrase that the government used all the time at the time was clearing up the mess. So the idea was the deficit increased so much because of Labour government profligacy. That became a politicized truth because Labour, for whatever reason, decided not to dispute that version of events. And through this sort of Westminster bubble, because there was no one disputing what the coalition government was saying, it became a politicized truth. But it was completely wrong. Do you remember this? It's, uh, some people remember this. This is from election uh, question time just before the 2015 general election. And it was Miliband's turn. And I think this guy actually asked him about uh, whether the Labour government had borrowed too much or whether he was going to apologise, I think, for the Labour government apology. And Ed Miliband said, no, I don't think the Labour government did apologise too much. And this guy said, no, you're lying. You bankrupted the country. You know, you should apologise. And, you know, it's easy to sort of laugh at this, but... You know, this guy was telling a truth. It was telling the truth that, as far as he knew, was true. Because he'd seen it in probably the newspaper that he reads, day in, day out. He'd seen 
government politicians say it was true and not be challenged in the broadcast media. So he had every right to think it was true. He can't really have been expected to have read the two or three papers on the Labour government's fiscal uh, record, which clearly said the Labour government hadn't been profligate. And he can't really either be expected to have looked up the data. Here's the data on the deficit. And you could probably argue, and I did argue in that previous paper, that maybe the deficit should have been a little bit lower. But it is obvious from that, just obvious, that the reason why the deficit exploded was because of the recession, not because of labour profligacy. Okay, so that takes us to the 2015 election. And not only had this particular story not been challenged, but essentially the whole conservative narrative wasn't challenged on the economy. The narrative was they were clearing up the mess, that was why we had to have austerity. I mean, a wonderful, amazing bit of spin to blame something you know, that you did on your predecessor government when it had nothing to do with the predecessor government. But not just that, now we'd had this wonderful recovery, uh, incredible employment growth, and, and you, know, we, you can trust us to manage the economy. Um, and as a result of this narrative being basically all you heard, then uh, the economy was the Conservatives' strong card in that election. Uh, indeed, if you looked at the polls, it was probably their only strong card. But the reality, the reality which they were never really confronted with, was, first of all, the Labour government hadn't been profligate, austerity had been their decision, and it had been an incredibly costly decision. It had delayed the recovery for three years. The OBR actually said it had delayed the recovery. The figures are in reports they published every year, hardly ever mentioned in the media. I actually took the OBR's numbers because say, delaying recovery is kind of economics talk. But I worked out what the minimum cost the average household was of austerity. And I thought the minimum cost, the smallest it could possibly be, was £4,000 per household. Much more likely to be in a figure like £10,000 per household. That's a lot of money, a lot of people's money to lose uh, in something that was really not necessary. Fantastic employment growth. No, that just meant productivity growth was really bad, uh, something we're still living with. And that lousy productivity growth was a big factor behind the fact we had an unprecedented fall in real wages. And a wonderful recovery. No, it wasn't a re wonderful recovery. It probably wasn't even a recovery because an economist would call a recovery when GDP starts growing faster than trend. The economy never grew faster than trend if you look at GDP per head in 2013, 14 or 15. It just grew at trend. So none of the, the spin was true. But it was the Conservatives' strong card. And they essentially got away uh, with winning the election um, on this basis. After the election, I published this on my blog. I think when The Sun did it, when um, Neil Kennett was defeated, I think that was a bit of an exaggeration uh, on The Sun's part. But my claim that it was media macro that won the Conservatives' 
uh, the 2015 election. I think that's fully justified. Let me um, give you one more example of a politicized truth. Uh, again, I mean, I'm sure it doesn't happen just to economists, but it probably happens more to economists because politics involves so much uh, economics. Um, some of you may remember the f you know, probably the first time, in, at least my memory, that economists really got involved with politics was in 1981. We had Margaret Thatcher and a deflationary budget at the height of the recession, and 364 economists wrote a letter uh, saying this was the wrong thing to do. Uh, and during the Brexit campaign, the only BBC programme, I think, which actually looked at what academic economists' views were, started with an introduction from one of their own journalists, which simply said, well, economists, you know, they just keep getting it wrong. And remember the 364, they got it wrong, because there was a recovery immediately after the letter was published in the budget. And I must admit, I kind of assumed this claim must be true, because it keeps getting made. And then I looked at the data. Here's the data. Uh, it's the growth rate in each quarter from the time of the budget. And the black is above trend. The white is below trend. And you can see for about a year and a half, there are many quarters in which growth is actually below trend as above trend. So it's not really a recovery at all. So the argument that the 364 were wrong because there was a recovery immediately after their letter in the budget is itself completely wrong. But a BBC journalist was quite happy to say that the economists were wrong uh, with no ifs, no buts. It's another politicized truth. And this one's interesting because you can actually kind of draw a timeline as to how it became a politicized truth. And, and the Institute of Economic Affairs, um, a, a, a right-wing think tank, has been instrumental in pushing this, this particular truth. Okay, we now come to, to Brexit. Um, and before the Brexit vote, uh, I was still unsure about whether all these problems were to do with macroeconomics and macroeconomics alone. And I've already talked about the influence of city economists. I thought, maybe it's just that. But nevertheless, on 3rd of March, I wrote a, a blog which was very pessimistic about the Brexit vote. And I said, look, you, it's basically Im immigration and the economic costs. And the case on immigration is clear. You can't control e migration from the EU while you're within the EU. So there's no uncertainty there. But the economic costs of leaving the EU are uncertain. And what will happen is that the arguments that there will be costs will be balanced by the broadcast media with arguments that there won't be costs. And as a result, most people kind of conclude, who knows? And finally, I said in March, and academic economists will just be ignored by, by the large. And that's pretty well what happened with Brexit. And I think Brexit showed more than anything else a kind of generic problem. And, you know, this isn't just really meant to be a, a moan about the media. It's also supposed to be diagnostic about what the problem is. And I've talked about politicised truths because you kind of have a Westminster bubble and don't let academics in. 
Um, but the other problem we saw in Brexit was the way that balance, as defined by the broadcast media, effectively neutralizes knowledge. And what you had with Brexit, because with Brexit, we did have a poll of all academic economists. And that showed clearly that for every one economist that thought it would be good for GDP, there were 22 others that suggested it would be bad for, for growth. Um, and, you know, economists are notorious for, for giving different views. So when 22 to 1, that's unanimous as far as economists are concerned. But that's not how it was portrayed. It wasn't portrayed as knowledge. This is what economics says. Let's just explain why economics thinks it's going to be bad for the economy. It was always an opinion to be balanced against the opposite opinion. The key point is this is not inevitable. And the really interesting example is climate change. Climate change, in, in the US, climate change is always contested because it's very political. As a result, a large number of, of people in the US think that scientists are divided over climate change because that's how it's always portrayed in the media. And in the UK, that began to happen. You began to see some poor climate scientist who was expressing all the normal doubts and ifs and buts that scientists do, put against some media-savvy guy from one of the denial uh, outfits um, in, in discussion programs. And I think as a result of, of the BBC and others doing that, they, they came under a lot of pressure from the scientific community, said this is just wrong. You know, 99% of climate scientists think there's man-made climate change, and you've got to do something different. And the BBC agreed. In 2014, they changed their policy. They weren't going to do this, this um, two sides of the argument stuff anymore. They were just going to portray it as knowledge. And it seems to me where you have a clear consensus with economists, they ought to do the same thing. And it's really important they do the same thing because nobody else is going to do it. Uh, the partisan press will always be the partisan press. So if nobody else portrays what the knowledge is in politicized areas, who else is going to do so? I've talked to people from the BBC about this and, and there's a deep resistance to to using the climate change model for economics when there is a, a consensus among academic economists. And I've you know, tried to get at what the, the problem is. I think, I think there are five um, problems. There are probably more, because I started off with three. One problem, I think, is that there's a deep suspicion among political journalists particularly about economics. And that's because they encounter economics most of the time in talking about forecasts. And what they do is confuse something like Brexit with macroeconomic forecasts. So just in case you think the two are the same, here's a little primer on why they're different. But I can put the very point very simply by saying, to say that you should ignore economists because their forecasts are always wrong, are a bit like going to your doctor who tells you you should stop smoking and you say, well, if you can't tell me the exact year that I'm going to die, I'm going to take no notice of you. 
But that's effectively what you're doing if you say, well, I take no notice of what economists say when they do a conditional forecast, which is a forecast of what happens if nothing else changes but just this, uh, because you get your macroeconomic forecasts wrong, which are really can go wrong for infinite number of reasons. So that's one reason. Uh, another is maybe they're a bit threatened by economists because economists know stuff that political journalists don't. But a point I'd keep making is I don't think all political correspondents you know, should, should be trained economists. I think what they should be is backed up by research, research that accesses what academic economists think. I think also there's, there's a problem of culture. Uh, you know, debates between two people are, uh, can be quite entertaining, particularly if they start throwing things at each other. And, you know, you get scoops by spending hours with politicians, not by spending hours with academic economists. Uh, so there's a kind of culture that mitigates against this. And it's been a long-standing problem. Back in the, in the 1970s, Peter Jay uh, and John Burt talked about this as a problem and said that there should be a new mission to explain. They talked about the existing way the media presents stuff as a barrier to understanding, very similar to the kind of things I'm talking about. Um, but they, their initiative kind of never, never got anywhere uh, because of these, these cultural uh, differences. Another problem, I think, is just simply pressure from the right-wing press, um, particularly true for the BBC. And the final problem, I think, is if, if uh, the broadcast media did do what I'm talking about, which is bring in what academic economists think more and more, they would have politicians on their back more and more often. Uh, and who wants that? But having said all that, I think the problem is also partly down to economists. I mean, I talked about my evidence for the fact that most economists didn't think austerity was a good idea. I shouldn't have had to look for evidence. There should have been polls undertaken by economists themselves, of themselves, to see what most economists thought. But there weren't. I think maybe Brexit has been a game changer there. Because there was a, a poll of all academic economists um, uh, on that occasion, it wasn't actually initiated by economists, it was initiated, I think, by The Guardian. But I think that's made it clear to, to economists that the answer to the problem of them being ignored is not more media training. That's not the point. You know, it's not about getting me on the telly sometimes. It's about finding out what the consensus among academic economists is and using that, using that consensus using that consensus to attack politicians. And I think that can be, um, if, if economists can get their act together and do that, and if the media uh, takes that information and uses it, I think that can be hugely beneficial. I think it would be hugely positive as well for, for politics. Um, I, let me give you some examples. I think one of the, the problems with... Um, sort of the way that politics is portrayed on the media is, you know, the idea of the centre ground is forever shifting. But um, economists, because they know that austerity is, is not a left-wing policy, can help stop that happening and, and focus on the fact that, in fact, politics 
by adopting austerity, shifts to the right. And indeed, you know, I mean, the election of Corbyn came as a huge surprise to political journalists. But if you realised how much politics was shifting to the right, and when you started seeing senior Labour politicians think, well, maybe this austerity thing isn't such a bad idea, it was no surprise at all that Labour Party members would elect basically anyone who was strongly against austerity. Let me give you one, one other thing that, that economists can bring to the political discussion. Uh, and that's the direct link between austerity and Brexit. I mean, clearly immigration has become more and more important problem. Some people just put that down to xenophobia, and I'm sure in some cases it is. But in some cases, it's because people really do think that immigration reduces their wages and reduces their access to public services. And, you know, again, political journalists will just say, well, you know, that's, that's an argument. But economists know that's not actually right. All the evidence suggests that immigration, particularly from the EU, increases your access to public services. Uh, and so you can, you can find direct link between austerity, therefore, and Brexit. Because people were finding it more difficult to access public services, they were told constantly that the health service in particular had been protected something that's repeated time and again, not just by politicians, but by political correspondents, when it had not been protected at all. The share of national health spending in GDP has been steadily falling over the last six years, which it hardly ever does. It normally rises for good reasons. Uh, so given all that information, what do you think? But, well, it must be because they're more immigrants. So it would be very good to bring economists in uh, but it needs really to happen sooner rather than later because things are going from bad to worse and I inevitably get to Donald Trump at this stage. Here's one of the, the, the most horrifying things in a way about the election that elected Donald Trump. Here's a poll which suggested that more people trust Donald Trump than they did Clinton. And that, to anybody who knows about that stuff, is just inconceivable. How can you think that? But if you just step back and think, well, what information do most voters get? And, well, they may watch Fox News, in which case there's no hope. But if they watch the non-partisan nightly news, what do they get? Well, they get less and less on policy issues from one election to another. But what they did get was a lot of time devoted to the Clinton email affair. And given that, it's not surprising that voters think, wow, Clinton, a bit untrustworthy. One final thing to say here, and that is what I'm talking about, problems with the media. It's not an alternative story to the one that you've probably come across, which is you know, Brexit was a reaction, and Trump was a reaction to people who got left behind by globalization, deindustrialization, and things like that. It's not denying that at all. Um, you know, the, tr the media doesn't make people getting disenchanted by the elites. They're quite right to in that sense. But the question to ask is why, having been disenchanted by elites, do they then choose uh, the, the policies and the, the people uh, that are effectively the snake oil salesmen of the political world? Why do they make such bad choices? And that, I think, is down. Uh, to the media. 
And I've tried not just to say there's a problem, but suggest concrete things we can do about it. So I've already talked about the politicization of truth and how you can get around that by opening up the Westminster bubble, allowing academic economics expertise in there, but also other expertise. Um, I've talked about the dangers of treating knowledge as just an opinion and adopting the climate change model instead. There was recently a, a, a report commissioned by the BBC Trust looking at statistics and some of the recommendations there apply equally to economics. Basically, uh, media needs to be braver, but to be braver it needs to be more knowledgeable. And this is, has to happen because uh, you know, what's often called the fourth estate is meant to be our defense against populism, not the means by which populism happens. And that's why we need to sort the media out and start doing some of these things. And, and for once, I don't think I'm melodramatic to say, if we don't do it soon, then we're going to be too late. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the New Statesman's New Times Future of the Left special podcast. And you can find more information about all our other New Statesman podcasts at www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast.